Welcome back to Road to CEO. I'm here today with Brad Dean, the CEO of Discover Puerto Rico. And he's going to talk to us about what it's been like to lead the branding and tourism marketing for an extremely popular tourist destination during some very challenging times. Brad, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Will, bienvenidos. Welcome from Puerto Rico. Great to be with you. It's awesome to have you. And so where are you in Puerto Rico right now? I am sitting in the historic city of Old San Juan. That's where our offices are. Uh, it's a city that just turned 500 years old. So when I leave my, uh, my semi-high-tech office, I walk out on cobblestone streets that, you know, one day uh, Christopher Columbus and Ponce de Leon were, were strolling over. So it's always a reminder of the, the history and the culture that's in this island. And it uh, keeps me very centered on what's most important when it comes to promoting tourism. That's fascinating. Yeah, I, I think there are probably very few cities in the in the in the continental U.S. that are that 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 are that old. It, it is definitely one of the oldest cities in the United States. And one of the things that really makes Puerto Rico unique is this rich, vibrant culture and history. Literally, you know, five centuries or more of recorded history all throughout the island. You don't typically think of that when you think of Puerto Rico. Yeah. But it's really one of the most differentiating points for our island, especially for visitors who are looking to do something more than just uh, relax on a beach. So as we get started here, why don't we start at the beginning? Can you tell us what is Discover Puerto Rico? How long has it been around? What's the mission? Well, Discover Puerto Rico was formed in 2018. Uh, we're a nonprofit entity with one mission, and that is to promote tourism to Puerto Rico. And we believe in the transformative power of travel to not simply generate economic impact, but to shape communities and change lives. And 2018, as you might recall, Puerto Rico was coming out of what was at that time the worst uh, you know, natural crisis in the history of the United States. Hurricanes Irma and Maria had devastated Puerto Rico. What people often forget is just a couple of years before that, Puerto Rico had been shut down with the Zika virus. So you go through this, this major healthcare crisis, then a major natural disaster, and we were formed to help lead the island out of the, uh, the depths of that disaster and bring tourism back. At the same time, we were created in a wave of privatization. Uh, the governor and the government at that time recognized that uh, they probably had too much centralized activity in the government. So we were bringing a new model uh, private sector-led organization, lots of new strategies, and trying to come out of the depths of some severe crises. And uh, as you know today, the records are being set. Tourism has led the recovery in Puerto Rico. So it's been an interesting ride for four years, but one that has reinforced just how resilient the island and its people are, but also how important travel and tourism is to economic recovery. That's fantastic. Is So... Um, is that a common model for tourism marketing? So, you know, it, it, for tourism in other cities in the U.S. or other states, do they have, is it private, is it privately funded or is it government run? Yeah, yeah the, the, the traditional model, which you see a lot in the United States and Canada and at times other parts of the world is a, it's kind of a, a public-private partnership. Mm -hmm. So typically most destination marketing organizations, DMOs, as we often refer to ourselves, are funded with some allotment of public funding. Usually it's a hotel tax. And that's a natural incentive, of course, to grow tourism if we're funded by the taxes tourists pay. And that's a very common model throughout our industry. And in many cases, you, know, you have a local board of directors, it's maybe some hoteliers or restaurateurs, business people who are involved in the industry. For various reasons, Puerto Rico had never used that model for decades. Uh, the, the tourism promotion had been 
largely politicized. So typically it was you know, part of a, a new administration when a new governor would be reelected uh, or elected to office, they would bring in people you know, from their campaign and others to run tourism. And it worked for the politicos. It was disastrous for tourism because what we ended up with is a constantly changing brand and strategy. Uh, we don't reelect governors very often in Puerto Rico. I think the last governor was reelected in the 90s. So just imagine if every four years McDonald's fired Michael Jordan, got rid of the Golden Arches, changed their menu. Yeah. You and I would never know what to expect when we pull up the drive through. And what we found coming out of Hurricane Maria was the brand in Puerto Rico wasn't so much uh, negative. It was neutral. Uh, people knew we were an island. They knew we were related to the United States. Beyond that, they really truly didn't understand a lot about Puerto Rico. So amidst this major challenge of recovery after a natural disaster, we also had to build a brand. So we started with this model, which is more common in the United States. It brings the private sector together, but we obviously work very closely with the public sector. And the intent is to make certain that we're not only building the brand for the future, but delivering the results for the bottom line today. Okay, so this does bring you more in line with the way other locations can, other destinations can be marketed. It may, maybe not exactly the same, but it is, you know, a, you know, the word privatization sometimes I think catches people a little bit and they it maybe has some negative connotations, but it, it's a model that really is very strong. It, it is. It's a, it's a very um, well-tested, successful yeah. model. It's been used in many communities, particularly throughout the mainland U.S. And, well, you make an interesting point. When you talk about privatization in Puerto Rico, uh, there's a long list of stories that haven't always ended well. And so one of the challenges for us, and particularly for me as a leader coming from the outside in, was to specifically and clearly communicate who we are, what we're doing, and what we're about, and not fall to the prey of those who have a fear of privatization because they've yeah. heard it didn't work or they know examples of where it didn't work. Um, but at the end of the day, every destination marketing organization is a little unique based upon its industry makeup, its community. And one of the challenges for us has been, and frankly for me as a leader, is to not just be really good at telling the world about Puerto Rico. We've had to challenge ourselves to get really good at telling the uh, Puerto Rico about its DMO. Okay. So what, tell me, what is a George Bailey moment? <laughs> you know, if you've watched the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, uh, George Bailey, the main character in that movie, which you know, seems to run in, on endless loops during the holidays, uh, you've got this guy who gets into a midlife crisis. He's in a job he never wanted, uh, living in a community he never wanted to live in, not doing anything that he had aspired to do. And he hits this midlife crisis. He's about to take his own life. And this angel in training named Clarence shows up changes everything around, shows George Bailey what the world would have been like without him. And he realizes he's had this tremendous impact. Lives have been saved and lives have been enriched because of him. And for me, that's exactly what we experienced in 2020. It was our George Bailey moment. The world stopped traveling and we had to see, unfortunately, what it was like without travel, without meetings, without conferences and conventions. And well, I got to tell you, it wasn't a pretty picture. I think all yeah. of us really appreciated the importance of meeting face-to-face -face and gathering, the importance of being able to travel, uh, the importance of being able to, to see family and friends in person. And hey, listen, Zoom and Teams and all these virtual connections are super convenient and very helpful, but you can't build an economy and sustain our future on virtual connections. So for a lot of us in the travel and tourism industry, the pandemic was our George Bailey moment when we realized what the world was like without us. 
And I think it's given us some swagger, some confidence to know that as we lead this recovery, I think of it as the great recovery. You know, we, we've read about the Great Depression. We lived through the Great Recession. We're in the great recovery of travel and tourism right now. It, it's fueled in part by recognizing what we went through. And of course, we don't ever want to go through it again. But I think it's made a lot of us, me in particular, much more appreciative and cognizant of those other benefits beyond the taxes, beyond the job creation, beyond the economic impact, the true intrinsic benefit of travel and tourism. And, and if that's a, a lesson that we had to learn going through a pandemic, so be it. But I hope we don't ever have to learn it again. You and me both. I, I know for my company, you know, I run an ad agency and for my company, I lost about 30% of my revenue, you know, overnight. Uh, I think it was March 11th, you know, when the, when the WA, I think that was the date the WHO declared the global pandemic and, and, you know, accounts started getting shut down and paused and all of that. So losing 30% overnight was challenging. What was it like for you? I would imagine it would be, I can't even imagine how challenging that would have been. Yeah, you know, I mean, the numbers tell the story and that, you know, we, we went from what was really going to be an all-time record year for tourism in Puerto Rico. It was like jamming the brakes on when you're going 65 miles an hour down the interstate. I mean, we literally just stopped. But I think what made it really difficult for me, particularly in a leadership perspective, was two things. One is we had to just be vulnerable and honest with our team. I, I didn't know, is this going to last a couple of weeks, a couple of months? Had no idea we'd be talking about it here in 2022. So the uncertainty of, of not only not knowing what was going to happen, but not knowing uh, that you don't know what's going to happen. It was just, uh, it, it, it really put a lot of intense pressure on us. And of course, that becomes a very human discussion, right? It's not just about the number of visitors. The number of visitors means, are we going to be able to sustain your job? Are we going to be able to keep our organization afloat? The other thing is that it went exactly against our DNA. And you can appreciate this being a promoter. The last thing anyone in travel and tourism marketing ever wants to do is say, stop traveling, you know, don't come here. That just completely runs counter to what we would normally do. But we had to train ourselves to recognize that, look, one of the ways we're going to come out of this is maintaining the trust of the consumer, the, the meeting planner, the traveler. And the only way we're going to be able to maintain your trust is to be honest and straight up and transparent. So we went from promoting tourism, saying, come visit us, to saying, it's not quite time, all in good time. We're going to be here when you're ready and when it's time to travel. Um, and we really focused on just becoming the single best resource for information about what was going on. We said, look, if we can't invite people to come, let's at least lay the groundwork for the recovery. And the longer that went, the better off I think we benefited. But I got to tell you, it was tough. It just challenged everything in me as a promoter, as a tourism leader, and an organizational leader. And But I also will say this, that we found a lot of opportunities coming out of this. And uh, I think it's, it's, it's creating winners and losers. It's mm -hmm. challenging those of us who you know, had traditionally operated by certain guidelines and strategies to rethink a lot of what we've done. So in some ways, it's become an exciting opportunity. But boy, oh boy, the casualties involved, not only the physical health casualties that we've seen friends and family and community members suffer, uh, but the impact on organizations like yours and ours. I hope you're enjoying Road to CEO. It would be great if you took a moment to subscribe either on the YouTube page or wherever you happen to be listening to the podcast. And if you really like the show, it would be great if you leave us a five-star rating and write a review on Apple Podcasts. 
This will help more people discover the show, which will help us make more episodes. Secondly, I want to give a shout out to Roiku.com. That's R-O-Y-K-U.com, which is our sponsor for the Road to CEO podcast. Roiku.com provides a black belt style certification program for people who want to learn how to do Google Ads, SEO, and Google Analytics training. We use Roiku.com to train our team at the Will Marlowe Agency, and so we love the program. And it has made onboarding new team members much easier and faster, and it also ensures that everyone on our team has an excellent baseline of knowledge for managing paid advertising campaigns. So, head over to Roiku.com and either check out the free training lessons there or sign up for the Black Belt program. Now... Back yeah. to the show. Yeah, so so I'd like to dig into this. So um, so in turn, so uh, was there one moment when you realized that you had to shut down? You had to was it or was it gradual? Did you? you know, what was that like? You know, in terms of just getting that word out and making the decision that COVID's not going away. It's uh, it's something we've got to deal with. So we've got to start changing that message and telling people not to come. Yeah, you know, the, the first time it hit me, really, I was actually uh, packing bags for a trip, a major trade show that takes place every year in Europe. And we, had, of course, knew about COVID and, and it seemed to be spreading at that point. It, it just barely reached the West Coast of the United States. And it really hit me when I got the notice that this major trade show that's been going on for decades was shutting down. And of course, it was a couple of weeks later when the men's uh, Final Four basketball tournament, you know, closed down as well. And it became a bit of a surreal experience for all of us. But I'll tell you what really hit me as a leader is we, we had already established a pretty robust crisis communication plan. Uh, our team, along with our public relations agency, Catch Em Out of New York, had worked extensively on this. And because Puerto Rico had dealt with the Zika virus, we at least had a little bit of a glimpse into mm what you might have to deal with in terms of uh, you know, some kind of a, a viral or communicative disease, although nobody could have been really prepared for COVID and what we've seen. So there was at least some thought process. And I have a, a real simple premise I use during every crisis. I learned this in my previous job, uh, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, where we frequently dealt with hurricanes and tropical storms. Everybody on your team has a role during a crisis, but everybody's role changes. So we set expectations. You might be a graphic designer by day, but during the crisis, you're reaching out to members. So we, you know, we, we try to reestablish that. So for you know, two, three, four weeks, we were solid because we knew that we had to be reactive and responsive at that point, primarily just you know, tracking information and trends and sharing that. But then it hit me. The longer this started to go on, the more I realized revenues are going to be impacted. And let's face it, our job is to promote travel and tourism. If you can't travel to Puerto Rico, what are we doing? We made a decision at the time. It was a little controversial. I know some people questioned it and thought I'd lost my mind. We said, we're going to do two, two things. Number one, we're not going to lay anybody off. We're not going to furlough. Um, we're going to keep you as long as we can. The second thing is, we're not going to go dark. We're not going to shut down. Now, we can't really promote tourism by inviting people to come right now. But let's put a premium on maintaining that relationship with clients and customers and travelers. Let's stay top of mind. And my thought was just simple that, you know, the longer this goes on, the more demand there's going to be pent up, the more we want to stay in front of, you know, the potential travelers and meeting planners and those who are bringing business to the island. What I didn't realize is how many of my peers were going to shut down. So we became, uh, you know, one of the few voices at a time when many were not out there. 
but we had to rethink it. So for example, you know, we couldn't invite meeting planners to come visit us and bring conferences and conventions. So we sent them packages of Puerto Rican coffee and said, hey, if you gotta be stuck at home, sequestered you know, in your home or your bedroom, or your office, at least enjoy a good cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. And while we weren't directly selling Puerto Rico, what we were doing is helping our coffee farmers uh, maintaining the conversation with our clients. And because Puerto Rico has a number of coffee haciendas that you can visit and see how coffee is harvested and roasted, we said, this is going to be a great experience for you when you are able to travel back. That decision that early on kind of fueled our team to come up with some creative ideas. Uh, you know, one example is our team said, well, we don't have much of a budget, but we do have research that tells us what people are going to want to do when the pandemic is lifted. Let's go create an, a, an episodic uh, series of content about Puerto Rico's culture that focuses on what people are going to be looking for. And with a very low budget, all the production and talent in-house, our team actually ended up winning three Emmys with this Sounds Like Puerto Rico series. We would never have created that in a normal environment. So I think a lot of it goes back to two strategies. Number one, we told our team for as long as we can keep you employed, we're going to do it. Second, your roles are changing, our measurements are changing but let's stay top of mind with our consumers. And I think that fueled some creativity and innovative approach that laid the groundwork for what two years later has turned out to be a record recovery for Puerto Rico. That's, that's fantastic. And I want to get into that recovery, but can you lay, can you tell me the timeline here? So around March, 2020, it sounds like you started changing your message, adapting people's roles and kind of thinking through you know, how to, how to stay relevant during this crisis. Is that right? Mar- so was that Mar- essentially March? How That's long did that last? Well, for the first 90 days, it was just that and really nothing more. You know, honestly, we, we weren't sure. Uh, and, we, and we had to start managing cash flow and all mm-hmm. of those concerns, just like uh, everyone else had. By about August, September of that year, we realized that it's going to be a while. I mean, we were going to be probably at the tail end of the recovery. Uh, there were a lot of people talking about when they could travel, they probably mm-hmm. stay in close. So we really focused in on who are the most likely targets to come. And late in 2020, early in 2021, we started to see some travel come back. Now, here in Puerto Rico, we had some pretty stringent health and safety protocols in place, including uh, some, some uh, extensive screening at the airport. And while that was a barrier to travel, we turned it into an opportunity and said, look, nobody is doing what we're doing at the airport. Um, you know you're going to be safe. Let's create a bit of a biological barrier here in Puerto Rico. And what that did is it allowed us to put ourselves sort of in a, a class of being, uh, if, if not elite, at least unique in terms of how we were managing that. So once the governor did begin to lift restrictions in 2021, we were able to go out uh, in about February, March time frame and start to beat the drums again and say, now is the time to come back. So, you know, it, it started for about three months. We just had to do nothing but kind of pull back on our messaging and rethink the strategies. And then for the next nine months, we were laying the groundwork. And we figured the longer this lasts, the more important it's going to be when people start traveling. When we started promoting in 2021, there was a huge upsurge in travel. And it turned out 2021 ended up being our all-time record year with more visitation and higher yields than ever before. But then we went right back into it with Omicron. And so we just had to, to break out the book again and went right back through this. And so it's really been you know, two years of start and stop, start and stop. But one of the lessons learned for me as a leader is if, if you don't limit your people, 
Um, in, in other words, you give them unlimited opportunity, not an unlimited budget, but unlimited opportunity to shine. What we've seen is some of our team has stepped up in ways we never thought that they could. We wouldn't have expected them to do it. And I've seen the same thing from an organizational standpoint. Uh, if I look at the winners and losers in travel and tourism right now, it's not the usual suspects that are winning. And a lot of the success, I think, has been destinations that have stepped back, rethought their strategy, and been super responsive to consumer trends. And that's probably a lesson learned for all of us going forward. You don't just have to go through a crisis to do that. We continually have to rethink and reevaluate and reposition, all the while staying mindful of what people are really looking for in a travel experience. That's a great story about getting through COVID as an organization. Now, did I hear you right that you get a lot of your revenue from hotel taxes or is that other organizations? That yeah, that's correct. That's pretty typical for DMOs and, and our funding comes from a portion of the taxes that visitors pay to hotels. Uh, overall, it's about 2% of the tax allotment uh, that visitors generate. So, you know, for Puerto Rico, uh, you know, it's, it's a multi-billion dollar economic impact hundreds of millions of dollars of tax collections, which fund schools and roads and bridge construction and, and law enforcement. And then we put a little bit back in the till to promote tourism so we can keep the tourism engine running. Yeah. Okay. So then, so then that money would have dried up for the most part for some time. Yeah, yeah. And we, you know, we ran on a base budget of next to nothing for a while. We made our team a priority. And, and hey, listen, some people are, I know are going to watch this and say, yeah, I had to cut people. And, and in some cases, you just couldn't avoid it. Sure. Uh, we did get to a point, we just didn't have enough work for everybody. But in our case, we recognize that a relatively young organization, and knowing we weren't going to be putting a lot of money into media, that the best resource we had, the best opportunity we had to lead the recovery was our team. And I also had to be mindful of my stakeholders. You know, as a nonprofit whose role is to grow tourism, I have to measure my impact by my partners. So when hotels are laying off their sales staff, that was all the more reason for me to keep salespeople on board. Mm. So we just tried to realign our priorities saying, we're gonna get people in place, not just because we felt it was the right thing to do, because we needed them. We wouldn't be spending a lot in paid advertising and media. We weren't going to have a lot of public relations fam trips. We weren't going to be doing a lot of press conferences. Uh, the website wasn't going to change over a lot. Let's just be really, really good and transparent at providing the information people need so they know what's happening in terms of health and safety protocols and the status of the island. Let's be really good at staying in front of our customers, our clients and travelers. And let's be really creative. And, you know, it's, it's amazing when you tell your team you got no budget, but here's the objective. Uh, sometimes when you're back to the wall is exactly when uh, you step up and shine the most. And yeah. we're seeing it now today with record revenues, record visitation, and maybe the most important statistic of all today coming out of the pandemic, more people employed in leisure and hospitality than ever before in the history of Puerto Rico. So we saw it with Hurricane Maria. Uh, we saw it after the earthquakes. We've seen it after the pandemic. When you unite and resolve and stay behind the right strategy and you do the right things and you put the right people in place, great things can happen, especially in travel and tourism. So, so tell me about this recovery. So it is, so, so it's, it's a record year. Um, and you know, or I, you know, I'll tell you what, actually, let, let me, I want to back up for a moment. So I want to make sure I, I, I don't forget this other question. So, uh, so you lost revenue, um, you cut expenses, activities went down, but, 
did you come, were there any alternative sources of revenue? Were there any, was there any, was, did that become a factor? Were you, were you able to, to get funding from to fill the gaps in any ways, or was it just sort of leaning down and trying to, yeah. to really, you know, make it through as best you could? We really didn't. I mean, in a, uh, in a normal environment, you know, you would look to your private sector partners to step up, yeah. but in the travel and tourism industry, they were struggling, so they couldn't, you know, fund uh, a promotional agency. And obviously we all know one, one really important premise of good fiscal management is having reserves. Unfortunately, because we were a new organization, we hadn't been able to build up reserves and being funded largely by hotel taxes, it just wasn't feasible early on especially keeping in mind we were coming out of a, a major natural disaster. So we really did. We just had to focus on what money we had reserved or built up. And then we knew there would be continue to be a little bit of residual money coming in uh, because there's always a delay in our, our flow. So, you know, we're funded today with money that was paid by visitors a few months ago, but I will tell you, Will, as a leader, that created so much uncertainty for me because I'm a numbers guy and, and I like to know where things are going. I don't like surprises. And so I was really flying, you know, on, on the premise that we may not have money to operate 90 days from now, but we're very honest and transparent with our team. And our point to our partners in the public and private sector was, Hey, today tourism is not there, but you're going to need us more than ever before. Our mission is probably more relevant than ever before. And I got to say this, the government of Puerto Rico was there with us. And when things did start to ramp back up, when we were able to go out there with a message, uh, the federal government had stepped in and helped the government of Puerto Rico. So we were able to put a little bit of money in to get the engine restarted. And that really helped us launch this full-scale recovery that has turned mm -hmm. into record-setting performance. So, so, okay. So now let's, let's hear about the, the current performance. So seems like more people than ever are coming to Puerto Rico and enjoying vacations and, and the tourism is, is booming. Is that, you know, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, the numbers have just been historic. I mean, it's more visitors than ever before. We're seeing longer lengths of stay. The average spend is significantly higher than what it was, which of course is generating more uh, tax collections. All of this aligns with what you would expect being on an island that we're seeing more traffic at our airport than in any recent year. And as I mentioned earlier, maybe the most important number is employment has come back strong. Now, a couple of things that, that are, are important to note and keep in mind is that we are seeing significant shifts in the base of travelers, who's traveling, why they're traveling, and where they're coming from. Uh, one of the most exciting changes for us is seeing a broader reach into um, the Midwestern US and even the Western United States. Historically, Puerto Rico is pulled from East Coast uh, you know, states like New York and Florida. We still pull a lot of visitors there, but we're broadening our reach and becoming more of a national destination. And part of that's fueled by new air service. So even in the midst of a pandemic, being able to uh, increase your outreach, bring visitors from new markets, add more air service, uh, I think is, is in part due to the fact we didn't close down during the pandemic. And also we took a much different strategy. And this actually began when we opened in 2018. Uh, historically, Puerto Rico had promoted itself as a beach destination. And we do have some beautiful beaches, but so does every other Caribbean island. Puerto Rico saying it has beautiful beaches is kind of like Las Vegas saying we have big casinos. We know you got that. Tell me what I don't know. So we had really been focusing on what differentiated our brand, the art, the history, the music, the dance, and the fact that there were 78 communities 
beyond, you know, the San Juan, which of course is the historic capital, 77 other communities that have great amenities. So we had already been working towards that. And one of the things we saw during this historic recovery is more visitor dispersion than ever before. Visitors coming and visiting places that they didn't even know they could go to. The uh, the thermal baths in Kawama, which Ponce de Leon thought was a fountain of youth. Uh, the longest zip line in the Western Hemisphere, which is in the center part, the mountain region. Coffee haciendas, the historic city of Ponce, the surfing in Rincon. So people were beginning to experience more Puerto Rico. Well, naturally you'd expect that means longer stays and more spending. So it's really been a change in the visitor base, change in behaviors. And I got to give our team credit. They have been uber responsive to these changes. And we may not always be ahead of them, but we're certainly reacting to what we're seeing. Another change we recognized, and this was sort of solving a problem, but the problem became the opportunity is that uh, you can appreciate this midway through the pandemic, depending on where you live, your expectation of what to, to what you were going to experience in Puerto Rico might differ. Uh, if you were coming from a state where mask mandates were common and social distancing was strictly enforced, your expectations might be different than, say, a state where there was no mask mandate and they weren't social distancing. And and we certainly saw that. And our message was clear. We want you to come. We want you to enjoy our island but we do want you to respect the, the laws and, and the guidelines. And it made us focus on what we called at that time, the responsible traveler, the traveler who's looking to enjoy and get out, get away from home, but they're going to follow the rules. We didn't want to create a conflict by bringing visitors who wouldn't adhere to the local standards. That actually enlightened us a bit. And it's carried forward in our marketing, even today, where we're really uh, emphasizing a relationship with the conscientious traveler, the traveler who wants to connect in a deep, way with the destination, wants to leave a destination better than they found it. So again, it's one of those situations where out of challenge comes opportunity. And if you're in tune to that and looking for that, uh, you can innovate even in the midst of a, a really serious crisis. That's interesting. So that's a, that sounds like a very desirable travel traveler to, to appeal to. So that, that's one of the things that came out of, of COVID to a certain extent. It is, and it um, and it. We didn't let it be limited by COVID. It came from that, but it actually, I think, fueled some of the innovation and creativity within our marketing team uh, as we began to reposition our brand coming out of that. Of course, during the pandemic, it was all about, you know, first it's not time to travel, then it's time to plan, then it was time to travel. But now that we were beyond it, we've set records and we're building based on that. Um, we've kind of repositioned our brand. Uh, the, the new positioning is what we refer to as, as live Boricua. Boricua is a, a familiar, friendly, collegial term that referring to people of Puerto Rican birth or descent. But to us, it's more than just a, a sign of our heritage. It's, it's a lifestyle. It's, it's, a, uh, it's a mindset. We want people to, to not just visit as a vacation. We want them to get a little taste of what it's like to live the Puerto Rican lifestyle. And I think that that kind of deep connection with travelers really made us step back and rethink, how do we promote travel? And, and it's ultimately based on a question, do we live to travel or do we travel to live? And if you could connect with people on that level, we just think this is an opportunity not only to expand market share and maybe you know, um, uh, enter new spaces, uh, we could redefine a new space of traveler. Now, I know that sounds bold, uh, but we're just crazy enough to think we can pull that off. So Live Borique was really about uh, elevating Puerto Rico is not just a great island destination, but a lifestyle. And we think it's a lifestyle that many people want and need to connect to in this moment. So every industry is a little different. And in some industries, 
um, there will be a lot of communication between CEOs of of competing organizations and competing destinations, perhaps in this case, would during the COVID crisis, did you did you talk to other leaders, other tourism leaders outside of Puerto Rico, you know, or is that something that maybe is is less common in in your space? No, it's very common in our space. I, I refer to it as friendly competition, especially when you get into the meetings and convention side or mm-hmm. destinations where you're always bumping up against each other, going after the same travelers. Uh, we see that here in the Caribbean, you know, where there's mm-hmm. there's certainly competition amongst the islands. Um, but even when we get into some segments of travel where we're competing with our friends in the mainland, and, and generally it's a very collegial relationship. Uh, but I found during the pandemic, not only was I talking to them more frequently, uh, in part because we had a lot more time to talk, didn't we? Right. But also, um, you know, it, one of the tests for me as a leader was to be more vulnerable. And not only with my team, but with my peers. I mean, you know, hey, let's face it, as CEOs, we, we want to have all the answers. We're looked to to have the answers or at least ask the right questions. When you don't know what to expect tomorrow and you can't predict what's going to happen with protocols and safety, much less the airlines, the cruise lines, uh, it's just an environment of deep, massive uncertainty. And for most of us who are in leadership roles, it's not a place that we're comfortable being. We want to clear up that confusion, right? We want to end the chaos. And I found myself really having just honest, frank, uh, open heart discussions with a lot of my peers. I also tried to be encouraging because yeah, I'd been through enough crises, especially here in Puerto Rico, where we had seen more than a few challenges. And I recognized for some of my peers, they hadn't really been tested at the, at, in the way that we were being tested. So I always looked to, you know, I felt during the pandemic uh, as CEO, uh, that often meant chief encouragement officer. So encouraging our, our team, encouraging our partners, encouraging my peers, and also listening to what they were doing. And, you know, our space, while there's a lot of innovators, uh, let's face it, you know, we're, we're all doing much the same thing. We don't necessarily do it the same way. So we were watching each other very closely to see what are you doing? What's your team trying? What's working? What's not? And I think it probably strengthened a lot of relationships that were already there, but we got to know each other in different ways. And, you know, one of the things I will say about the virtual meeting scenario is I got more familiar with people's children, their pets, their artistic preferences than ever before by seeing, you know, peeking into their, uh, their personal life uh, on Zoom calls. And I think that helped me also get to know some of my peers in a different way. Yeah, I think the uh, yeah, I think we all probably can relate to, to that deeper level of connection that, that did ironically come out of these Zoom meetings and all of that stuff. From my perspective, a lot of that I think will carry forward forever. You know, we'll be doing, you know, even though we do things in person now, we also do quite a bit still on Zoom and, and over virtual meetings. And, and I imagine that's going to continue. Uh, do you think that those changes, you know, in terms of you being a more vulnerable leader, that sort of thing, is that a change that is a permanent change in your opinion, or is it something that you're, you'll, you know, was was right for that time, but maybe not moving forward? I think it has to be. I, I think as a leader, if you haven't gone through some dramatic transformation, you've missed an opportunity, and you're almost guaranteed to be less effective than before. Now, certainly there's some behaviors and, and habits and, and protocols that we use to get through it. Um, but I think it, one of the lessons this taught me, uh, particularly on the mental health level, uh, I would pretty commonly you know, see somebody I knew before and say, how are you doing? But 
I wasn't really asking that question to know. Now I'm asking it and I really want to know. I also think it, it really challenged us to not only manage with empathy, which is always an important balance for me. I, I'm driven by results. I'm very results oriented, but we have to lead with empathy as well is recognizing some of the challenges that I probably didn't appreciate. Uh, I have two uh, you know, adult children. Uh, I can't imagine what it was like with uh, you know, a young child where you're part-time professional, part-time homeschooler, uh, with uh, some of our staff who are caregivers for parents or grandparents. Uh, the challenges in balancing this were extraordinary. And I don't know that I really truly appreciated that. So shame on me if I don't carry that forward, uh, you know, as, as a leader. Now, there's some things, you know, we're, we're all wrestling with remote work and where does that go? Uh, so I think there's some things we've, we've adapted to that will maybe moderate or tweak going or coming out of this. Uh, but on a personal level, uh, I would hope that looking back on my career, people will note that one of the things that changed about Brad Dean as a leader is uh, willing to be more vulnerable, willing to connect on a human level, maybe more frequently or more readily, and also being mindful of all of those other, you know, balancing priorities that, that come into play that probably became more apparent during the pandemic. Yeah, I, I think that's great. I've always, one of the things that really excites me is building a high performance team. And I, I feel similarly to you that, that building a high performance team, you know, I, I got better at that during COVID. At least I, I think I did. I, I tried to. And I think that a lot of the empathy that we were uh, kind of in a position to, 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 to deepen, I think that really made a big difference in my own leadership style as well. Well, for certain. And listen, when you go through any crisis, especially like what we've been through the past couple of years, um, it should change you, right? It, it, it must change you. And uh, when, you, when you go through a crisis, you know, you're going to deal with things that you just can't control, but you can control how you react and respond. And not everybody's uh, trained and, and programmed to do that the same way. And so that's one of the things I found was, you know, helping, encouraging, um, but also it was incredibly important to be transparent and clear. And, and I found myself over communicating things. I don't know if that was the, the Zoom era where it was just uh, maybe I don't feel as comfortable communicating virtually as I did in person, or maybe it was just the confusion and the chaos that we felt like we were dealing with constantly. But I found that the really, I couldn't say the, the necessary messages enough. I had to continually repeat them and reinsert them. And, you know, as a leader, set the goal. Even when you don't know exactly, you know, what's going to happen, when you're going to come out of this, uh, we always reminded our team that what you were doing was important before. It's even more important now. And we can look back now with record results and, and see that that was the case. So did you always want to be CEO of an organization? I didn't set out necessarily to be CEO. I've always viewed leadership as both a tremendous responsibility, but also a tremendous privilege. I mean, as leaders, uh, we have the opportunity and the privilege and the responsibility to positively impact people's lives, their livelihood, their communities, and indirectly their families and their future. And so I've always been drawn to that. Uh, the title for me uh, doesn't matter. I've been a general manager. I've been a CFO. I've been a CEO. Uh, my first leadership responsibility, I think, was in second grade when Mrs. Holmes taught me to be class leader. And I just always found that leadership to be a, a great uh, privilege and responsibility. And uh, if it comes with the title of CEO, that's great. Uh, I've always found, too, I, I think when people get more focused on title than, than impact and responsibility, it can be um, that can it can certainly be a distraction, and 
here in Puerto Rico, given the fact it's a new organization, a new model, I'm just hoping people call me a friend and a partner and whatever the other titles they want to give me is fine. <laughs> so um, was, was COVID, was that the most difficult challenge that you've had so far in your career? And this could be going back before, uh, before leading Discover Puerto Rico. Was that the most difficult or, or were there any others that, that maybe, maybe passed that even? No, I think this one, just because of the scope, yeah. the scale, and the impact it's had on, you know, the, the I mean, from uh, the lives that have been lost yeah. to the families that have lost people and it couldn't be with them in the end to the constant ongoing uh, uncertainty and challenge and, and then throw into that the, um, you know, the politicizing of this and, and mm -hmm. the, the, the sharp divisive lines have been drawn. I think this has tested me in a leader, as a leader in ways I've never had. Now, I've dealt with you know, a number of crises. I mean, wildfires and hurricanes, earthquakes, and uh, even you know, shootings. And, and those hold some unique challenges in themselves. But at least you know, in situations like those, you know there's an end coming. And you can usually foresee it. Now, it may not happen quick enough or soon enough the way you want. Uh, this one, I think, because of the prolonged nature of it, and um, just the uncertainty that was there, especially you know, as we began to get out of it and then saw a resurgence with the variants, uh, certainly made this one uh, a unique test. And for us here in Puerto Rico, we went through the Zika virus and then the hurricanes and then earthquakes and, and then the pandemic. So we've been no stranger to crisis. But, but yet I, I look around and I see resiliency and, and strength in Puerto Rico that to me is inspiring. And I think one of the things that we did early on and I'd like to think this was a brilliant visionary decision, uh, but I can't take credit for that. We hired for culture. Uh, we weren't sure because we were a new organization how much political influence it would be, uh, you know, we would be facing uh, to hire, you know, someone's friend or relatives or, or, or uh, business partners. So we made a rule early on when we were building our staff in 2018. We said, look, before I interview anybody, before any of our management team interviews anybody, we're going to use an, a firm that's going to do independent screening. And they're going to do two screens. One is going to be a skills test. The other is going to be a culture test. So by the time I interview them, I'm going to know that they're a fit for the job and a fit for the organization. I'd never done this before, but we did it to kind of insulate the process. It became one of the best decisions that we've, uh, we've made as an organization and I've made as a leader. Uh, because what it did is it assured that we got people who have very consistent values. And one of the values that we looked for was the ability to overcome adversity. Now, in my mind, that was because we were coming back from a hurricane. I uh, had no idea that that was prepping our team and, and helping us staff our team to be prepared for what we knew or what would eventually become uh, some very challenging crises. So it's reinforced to me the importance of hiring for culture the importance of making sure your values are not just words in the, in the annual report and on the wall, uh, but words you live by and hiring for that. And I don't think I will ever staff an organization again without being cognizant of the culture that we're hiring for, the values that we're living by, and the need to have people who have overcome adversity in their personal life or their professional life, because that's not something you have time to train for in the midst of a crisis. I think that's fascinating. And I talk to very few CEOs that, that talk about hiring for culture. I do that myself. And I agree with you completely. Once you start doing that, it, you see this amazing benefit from it. And I, can't, I also can't imagine going back to, to the day when I used to hire without really having that framework. 
Yeah, I've had this debate with some of my peers who say, yeah, but you know, if, if you hire talent, and you hire skills, you know, people will act, um, you know, acclimate to the culture. A, it doesn't usually work that way. And I'll tell you the opportunity that's missed if you don't do it is we've all made bad hiring decisions, right? We've all hired somebody to say, gosh, that, yeah, boy, I wish we could have that one over. What I found is when you define the culture and live by it, make that very clear, when you make those bad hiring decisions, those people who aren't a fit, they figure it out sooner than anyone else. So oftentimes it saves you those, yeah. those hard discussions and those difficult decisions down the road. And we've had that happen, and thankfully not very often, but on the rare occasion that somebody you know, gets through the hiring process and then realizes this is not for me, they want to leave oftentimes before you're showing them the door. So yeah. I would never go back to it before. It wasn't something I had done historically, and, and I probably would have argued against this point a few years ago, but because we did it, because it's worked so well, and I've seen the impact, uh, not only on the results of the organization uh, and the potential performance that we're curating, but also we're nurturing a team that has some instant bonding and natural team building. And when you hire the right people and they align with the values, it makes it so much easier for people to find their passion and their purpose intersecting. And you can do that in your organization. There's no doubt you're going to accomplish great things. Yeah, I agree completely. And I always think about how, you know, I think it's a pretty commonly accepted position that people enjoy being around people who are similar to them or who share similar values. And so it, when you hire people who share similar values, you're creating an environment where people are more likely to get along. They're more likely to enjoy their coworkers, you know, and, and so for me, I run an organization that really is a services business. And so for me, having people who are happy, having people who are, you know, who, who, who cooperate well with one another and who help each other out, um, that creates this tremendous, uh, uh, you know, dynamic that starts to really propel the speed of movement. And so I can't, you know, so for a services business, I can't imagine, you know, hiring only for skills, you know, you really, I mean, obviously you've got to have the skills, but skills plus culture is just such an amazing combination. Yeah. And you don't have to decide between the two. I think right. what, what you prioritize really determines uh, your approach. And I think ultimately uh, it, 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 if you don't do it, it limits yourself. But Hey, at the end of the day, uh, the, the results are speak for themselves and uh, unity creates a sense of community community will breed that collaboration, that cooperation. And, you know, you don't hire clones, you hire unique people mm -hmm. who do bring some, uh, some of the uniqueness and, and their own values into the workplace. But when you can hire a team that are already aligned with the values, uh, it makes it so much easier, not only to live by those, but to build around those. And that's what we found here at Discover Puerto Rico is it, we didn't necessarily do it thinking that it was going to have that impact, but it certainly has. So I would never do it differently going forward. Yeah, that, that's really fascinating. Um, so I, I always like to ask, are there any things that you really wish you had, had known differently um, or done differently when you started out? I imagine maybe this is one of them, the hiring for culture, but uh, are any, anything stand out to you that, you know, going back years in your, in your career that, that maybe you didn't, didn't know that, that you've now is really a big part of your, your career? Yeah, well, I think you framed it the right way. I, I'm, I'm a big believer. You just, you don't live with regrets, right? There's, there's a reason why the, the rear view mirror is this big and the, the windshield is that big. We need to be driving our lives looking forward. 
but I, but we all fail. We all have uh, things we would do differently. And as long as you're failing forward, right? John Maxwell's axiom, if you're always failing forward by learning and growing, then that's okay. And there's some things certainly that I wish I had learned early in my career. And when I talk to younger leaders who are, are looking for mentors or just, you know, yearning for knowledge, I always uh, offer this to them because I think it was when I, lessons I learned that really made me a better leader. Um, the one is change happens through people. Uh, it doesn't happen at people. It doesn't happen around people. If you really want to affect change, whether it's in your home, uh, your relationships, your workplace, your community, it happens through people. And that can be slow sometimes. That can be messy. Uh, it may be some start and stop. Uh, but I learned uh, it's, at one point in my career, I learned that if I'm really going to affect long-term lasting change, it has to happen to people. I also, early on in my career, I went as a manager, I was taught uh, about the importance of delegation. I worked for a large organization that drilled this into us. And delegation is important. Delegation responsibility is certainly important. We get swamped uh, if we're not. But I think it's not enough to delegate responsibility. You also have to delegate ownership. And one of the, the qualities, I think, in my leadership that's evolved over the years is when I realized that I would create a lot more buy-in and a lot more inspired, passionate work by giving people ownership, not just delegating them responsibility, here's what you're going to do, uh, but giving them ownership and giving KPIs that don't just measure performance, that they inspire and motivate. Then I really started to see something change in the organizations I was leading. Not only did we get better at what we do, we began to eclipse the performance of our competitors, exceed the expectations of our stakeholders, and the development potential of people rose. Now that was me changing, so obviously, you know, that was me as a leader lifting the lid on them. And so I'm, I'm a big proponent of not simply delegating responsibility, delegating ownership where you can. And then I don't think we can say it enough. I, I didn't focus on communication skills early in my career. Uh, and I realized more and more the leader and saw it, especially during the pandemic, that uh, as a leader, you have to be crystal clear and consistent in communications. And that's not about giving speeches. It's not, uh, you know, about uh, being able to stand in front of a big audience. I mean, you might be doing that, but it's about being able to have that one-on-one -on -one and build true trusting relationships which often starts with the ability to not only clearly consistently deliver a message, but to be a great listener and to earn people's trust and respect and pay that back. And um, those are easy lessons to speak of. They sometimes take you know, hard, painful lessons to learn. But those are the three things I think is I could go back early on in my career as a leader that I would probably force feed myself because once I really internalized those, it not only made me more effective as a leader, it impacted my team and the people around me. And as leaders, ultimately, that's our core responsibility. Are there any simple metrics that you use to measure whether or not you're being successful or whether or not Discover Puerto Rico is successful? Are there any, you know, simple metrics that, that you follow just as kind of a, you know, that really guide either your management or your, or your priorities? Um, is that something that factors in for you? Yeah, I don't know. I'd call them simple, but there's certainly a lot. I mean, obviously the numerical performance measurements and we're very clear in our organization to measure our internal performance, but also translate that to the external impact as well. Uh, I can drive impressions and create earned media and place mm -hmm. ads, but if I'm not filling hotel rooms, if I'm not filling airplanes, then there's a disconnect. So I, I, I look at that as a kind of a foundational I, I can't ever get away from 
those economic measurements. But I think that's just a part of the story. We also try to identify where our greatest impact is, not only on, say, driving the economic results or building the brand, we can measure those quantitatively and qualitatively, but also on driving the pace of innovation. And I think that's a, an important role for our organization. I know our industry looks to us for that. Now, if you're in a role where you're not expected to innovate, then it doesn't matter. But I'm always constantly evaluating from my own perspective and then from stakeholders' perspective, uh, are we bringing enough new ideas to the table? Are we innovating enough? And I think that also falls into an important leadership lesson is as leaders, we have to be willing to let our people fail. Uh, if we're not failing, uh, often I'll say then we're probably not doing enough. Now that's easy to say, but when you're in the boardroom explaining to your board of directors what didn't work, or when you've got to explain to local government partners or media where you've fallen short, those can be some really, really tough lessons to learn. So you have to take measured risk. But I think especially in this day and age, if our challenge is to respond uh, to the disruption that we're seeing around us, then we have to get ahead of that. So I'm always evaluating the organization on the internal pace of change, which has to be at least as fast as the external or otherwise you lose control. And secondly, how much of that are we driving? How much of that are we bringing? Um, but it's gotta be measured, it's gotta be impactful. And if that's not happening, then that's on me more so than anybody else. And while morale is important, we certainly pay attention to morale. What I really like to test, and, and when someone comes into our organization, I always challenge them, uh, hey, when you meet some of our staff, ask them about the mission statement, ask them about the values. I'm, I'm almost maniacal about this. I, I want you to be able to walk into my office, talk to any member of our team, and in their own words, their own way, they should be able to tell you what the mission, the vision, and the values are, and how they drive those. And I know that sounds kind of corny, but if your mission, vision, values are only known when somebody's reading the annual report, then you're losing a great opportunity. And for me as a leader, if my team can't share that in an honest, straightforward way from the heart and make it relevant to them and to you, then as a leader, I'm failing. Mm. So what's next for Puerto Rico right now? Puerto Rico is in an extraordinary time and place right now. Uh, we've had some bankruptcy in our past. Uh, that's been uh, resolved with a lot of credit to the governor and the fiscal oversight board. Puerto Rico is in the best fiscal condition it's been in in decades. And you know, when you get a new lease on life, uh, you're not um, you know, dealing with overbearing debt. Uh, now you've got an opportunity to start to invest in people and infrastructure. Secondly, uh, the federal government's making a massive investment in infrastructure, rebuilding the power grid, roads and bridges that have been damaged, schools that have been closed because they weren't safe. So the infrastructure is improving. Uh, we're actually seeing a lot of young professionals coming back to Puerto Rico. And that's huge because we saw quite a brain drain for a number of years during the bankruptcy and then accelerated by the hurricane, a lot of young professionals in Puerto Rico moved away. Now we're seeing them come back. A number of them work for us. And that's an exciting time. And I'm a little biased, but I think having travel and tourism lead the recovery for Puerto Rico is a good thing, not only for the tourism industry. Uh, one of the things I love about this industry is beyond the economic impact and the fun and the memories that we create and share, uh, travel and tourism is like a first date for commercial investment, for relocation. Mm -hmm. Nobody ever moves to a new community, you know, buys a home, starts a business without first experiencing some of the hospitality. They stay in a hotel, they ride in an Uber, they, they eat in the restaurant. Mm -hmm. 
And so we are that first impression in many ways, and our marketing certainly leads that. And couldn't be more excited with what we're doing with Live Boricua and the results we're seeing in travel and tourism. I believe that it's laying the foundation for a, uh, a really a renaissance in Puerto Rico, an island that is coming back bigger, better, stronger, strong relationship with the United States, yet very distinctly independent culture and history that stands on its own. Uh, I would tell anybody that's, that's watching, you know, whether you're an investor or a business or in travel and tourism, keep your eye on Puerto Rico. This island is launching in a way we've never seen before and couldn't be more excited about the results of date. But when I look at what's happened and I look at what lies ahead, there's no doubt in my mind that the best days of Puerto Rico lie before us and not behind us. Well, one question that just occurred to me was, um, I'm curious, if, how do uh, digital nomads fit into to Puerto Rico's future? You know, the, the term for people who are not tethered to a location, they can, they can do work for a company based in New York, but now they can live in Puerto Rico, I suppose, theoretically. Would, is that something that is, uh, uh, that's, that's big for Puerto Rico? It, it, well, it, it is. I mean, in terms of the, the larger, broader scale, it, it's a fairly small percentage of our travel and tourism now, yeah. but it's big in a couple of ways. Number one is you, you perfectly summed it up. In fact, we, we uh, added this to our campaign during the pandemic. You know, if you can work from anywhere, why not Puerto Rico? And uh, the compelling and, message. Well, yeah. When you consider the, the, you know, the beauty, I mean, you and I could be working from a coffee hacienda in the mountains overlooking the Caribbean. We could be looking from a, a beach in Rincon watching the surfing waves I mean, the, the rainforest. I mean, there's so many cool places to visit. And Puerto Rico has a lot of developed properties, both in the urban area and outlying areas as well. And we noticed this during the pandemic, of course, that this became something a lot of tourism promoters were looking at. One of the advantages that Puerto Rico had is because there had been such a significant investment in the infrastructure after Hurricane Maria, uh, we had an expanded 5G communication network. 31 internet service providers. So digital nomads have to stay connected constantly, and that was important. And so we have seen uh, a steady pickup in that. And we're excited because we think this really lends itself to a greater presence of that leisure trend that we in the tourism industry have talked about for years, that balance between business and leisure. And you know, when you think about some of the barriers to travel, uh, work schedules, school schedules, having come down or at least, you know, reduced somewhat because of the pandemic, mm -hmm. as, as those become normalized and part of our everyday lives, uh, it just opens up the opportunity for more and more people to be able to travel and work. And so for us, the digital nomads and those looking for a leisure experience, Puerto Rico is a great option. And as long as we can maintain good connectivity with the U.S. mainland, particularly in big markets where there's a lot of, of young techies working uh, we think this this will continue to feed additional traffic to Puerto Rico. That's fascinating. So how should people follow you or get in touch with you if they're interested in, you know, in reaching out? Um, and how should they, uh, what, what, where should they go for sources of information on, on travel and tourism for Puerto Rico? Sure. Well, if you're looking to come to Puerto Rico, we welcome you. And we're obviously uh, not only open for business, Puerto Rico is doing great right now uh, with so much to offer. So take a look at discoverpuertorico.com. Uh, you can plan your vacation there. You're guaranteed to find some things that you didn't know we offer, whether it's a bioluminescent bay kayaking trip or hiking the rainforest or maybe just finding a community that's centuries old you didn't even know about. So take a look at discoverpuertorico.com and it's got everything you'll need uh, to plan your next getaway to our island 
uh, paradise. Uh, in terms of me, I'm on LinkedIn. You can find me there, Brad Dean on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm on Twitter, uh, at Mr. Brad Dean, and uh, Instagram as well. Brad, thank you so much for joining us. I hope everybody who's listening plans their vacation to Puerto Rico soon. And uh, I wish you the best of luck in the, in the years ahead. Hey, thank you, Will. We look forward to welcoming you and all your followers, Puerto Rico, and let's all lead well. Thanks again.